This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his um, condemnation from, from God. I have applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and refuse of all things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks Jess. Um, yeah, like Jess said, we're uh, in First Corinthians. Uh, if, if this is your first, if you're not used to being with us in village, we just take books of the Bible and just work our way through them, or sections of books of the Bible and work our way through them. We're going to take a break at, at the start of... Um, uh, December and we're going to have a separate Advent season series and we're going to be studying the book of Ruth and that so that's something we're looking forward to so if you want to go ahead and just be reading through Ruth um, Ruth is one of my favorite books of the Bible it's incredible um, anyway so look forward to that 1 Corinthians 4 Paul's been he's been um, writing to this church that he planted in Corinth and uh, basically he was in Ephesus and uh, this woman called Chloe, who probably was a church leader and a businesswoman, some of her friends and associates have said, hey Paul, I know you know these guys in Corinth. And he's like, yes, I love those guys. And then she's like, you should probably check in with them because there's some stuff going on there that you, you might not agree with. So he's been writing a letter to them and he starts by saying, by addressing this core issue that he's been writing for, for now, um, uh, where we're at uh, three and a half chapters about disunity and division within the church. And by now you should know, because we've been talking about this for the past six weeks, five, six weeks, that the church cannot be divided because we are the body of Christ and can Christ be divided? No. So this is why he's hammering this point again and again, again and again and again. And today is when it's almost like, it's almost like he, he finally wants to put this issue of, of division to bed. So one of the things that causes the most division in anything in life is opinions, right? I heard someone say this week that um, opinions are like elbows. Most people have more than one. And that's true. We all have, uh, we all have more, than, more than one opinion, right? 
That's not the phrase I was going to say, and Thomas is laughing about that right now. Uh, It's always been the case, but especially with social media, right? You can have an opinion about everything. So you probably all have particular things that you're interested in that you follow on Facebook or Twitter or or Instagram. So uh, most of my online social media time is is, uh, reading people's opinions about politics and about Manchester United. And I don't know which one's more depressing at the minute, to be honest. Um, I had to mention Man United once. Even this week, this last week, uh, the amount of opinions out there about whether or not Kanye West is a Christian, I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. You can actually live tweet things. Does anyone, does anyone live tweet? I don't know if anyone does. No one's embarrassed. I don't want to put my hand up. You can live tweet TV shows. So our opinions are so important to us that we can actually tweet about things as they're happening so people can know our opinion about them. Isn't that, it's just a weird kind of culture to live in. But I'm not saying that opinions are bad. I'm not even saying that opinion. I'm not even saying that opinions are invaluable. Um, I think that what we're going to see today from this passage is that when we critique things and when we evaluate things, that's where we get our opinions from, right? So if you have an opinion about something, it's because you've looked at it. That plant is really good, and you've judged that plant. Not that one. I forgot to water that one. So don't look at that one today. Uh, that plant is really good. Um, because I've seen it, well, it looks like a good plant. Why? Because it has green leaves. You value it according to your standards. And, and Paul's saying that, 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 that when we evaluate things, there is one standard that we should evaluate ourselves and other people by. So when we evaluate ourselves, the conclusion that we come to from this text is that the, 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 the only standard for evaluation, for self-evaluation that matters, is God's standard, Right? So this is what we're going to see from our, from our text this morning. That, that seeing ourselves in the right way, evaluating ourselves and our church leaders and each other's through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of, of scripture and through the eyes of God is a really, really good thing. So here's, here's our theme for this morning. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm going to show us from this, from this text. And if you're taking notes in your Corinthians journals, you can write this down. Godly self-evaluation leads to a radically cruciformed life. I'll say it again. Godly self-evaluation leads to a radically cruciform life. And we'll explain that as we go on. Let me pray for us and and then we'll get stuck in. Uh, Father God, we need your help anytime we open the Bible because we're sinful and and we try to read our own opinions into it. And we don't want to do that, Lord. We want to hear from you. Uh, We believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe that you're present with us by your Spirit. So help us to hear what you have to say to us this morning so that you can be glorified and so that our lives can be full of the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So how do we evaluate ourselves? I think in this text, Paul gives us a pretty good uh, framework for how we should go about evaluating ourselves and how we should see each other. And it's at that point uh, that he's addressing this disunity within the church. So the first first thing we see in verses 1 to 2, keep your Bible open, right? The first thing we'll see in verses 1 to 2 is that we are to see ourselves as servants and stewards called to be faithful. Okay, so in verses 1 and 2 he says... This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards to the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, okay? So in the previous section, Paul's been, he's been teaching the Corinthians that, that Christians are workers in God's field. We're, we're laborers in God's building project. Remember we saw that last week, that we are, being, we are people who are building God's house and we are part of that house himself. And in this section, he makes it clear that 
that this isn't just a standard that, that he's just imposing on the Corinthians. He's saying, no, no, I want you to regard me this way, okay? He's not saying you guys are the servants. Actually, he's saying, when he says us, he's saying the apostles, me and Apollos and, 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 and Peter, the people they were arguing about. He's like, I want you guys to see us. I want you to know that these are the standards I hold myself to. But I don't think it just applies to the apostles, Right? Uh, the things he's talking about here aren't just, maybe in your Bible it says uh, the heading, the ministry of the, the apostles or something like that. I don't think that he's just talking about the apostles. These things aren't just even reserved for elders and pastors and, and your missional community leaders. That's not how this works. The, the things he's about to say are, are, are things that apply to all followers of the way of Jesus. All of us. If you're a Christian this morning, the things he's talking about, this way of evaluation, self-evaluation, applies to you. Paul says in verse 6, he says that he's using himself and Apollos as an example, right? So that the church would learn from them. So if he's using himself and, and Apollos as an example so that we could learn from him, obviously he wants us to apply these things to ourselves as well. So what does he say? Well, firstly, he says that we're to see ourselves as servants and stewards. Now, I want to pause there for a second, because maybe when I say a servant, you think of like Downton Abbey or something. I don't know what you think of. That's what I popped into my head. I've never seen the show. Um, <laughs> don't know why I thought of that. But what the word that he actually uses here, uh, this Greek word, it means under rowers. So these are, they're also called galley slaves. And what they were was they were the, the slaves in the bottom of the boat. They were chained to their oars, and they had to just keep rowing. That was their position. They were the lowest of the low. And they had one job to keep rowing so that the people up above them could, could keep moving forward. That's how, that's how we are to see ourselves. Their job, the galley slave is just to keep rowing until the captain tells them to stop. Many of them would die at their post. Many of them would, would I mean, it was full of disease and sickness and you can imagine there was no sanitation. They're just people who are under the instruction of the captain to do the work at his bidding. That's all. And this is how Paul sees himself, and, and, and this, is how, uh, this, is how, um, this is how pastors and church leaders should see themselves. I, I, hope that, I hope that you know by now that in this church that um, one of the things that we talk about a lot as elders is that we are to be the chief servants. We're, we're just to lead you guys in serving. You want to know how to serve the church, then you should be able to look at us. That's it. I said this at our membership thing, our membership class last Sunday night in Belong. I said, uh, one of my favorite examples of, of eldership and village is I have a picture of, of when we were doing a, a, clean, a cleanup day at our building in East Belfast, and John, one of the elders, uh, I have a picture of him, and he has his arm down a drain up to here. He's lying on the ground, he's covered in muck, and he has his arm down the drain, cleaning the drain. That's what elders should be. That's what galley slaves are. That's how we should see ourselves. This is what we're called to. But also he says that we're stewards. Now, a steward is something like an estate manager, okay? An estate manager is, so the lord of the estate, the, the, the landowner, puts a manager in charge of that. He said, listen, I'm going to leave you in charge of that. You don't own it. But it's your job to make sure that it goes well. It's your job to make sure that it's looked after. It's your job to make sure that everything is growing. It's make, your job to make sure the business is okay. And this is what we're called to. To be call, called to be good stewards of what God has given us. And again, it's not just for leaders. This is how every Christian should see themselves. We need to take on the same mindset that Christ had. In Philippians 2, we see this, right? 
that Jesus, even though he was, even though he was God, he didn't consider this something to be grasped and, and held on to. He took on the form of a servant. Paul actually says in Philippians that he emptied himself. He made himself like a galley slave. And so if you think that the, the Christian life, if you, if you for one minute think that the Christian leadership, if you aspire to Christian leadership, or you think the Christian life is about uh, a, a position of, of elevation, it's about a position of, of having some kind of good standing, it's not, it's the opposite. It's about making ourselves lower than everyone else. The Christian life should be marked by service. And later on in 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to see that. We're going to see that for us, we have to lay down our rights so that we can win people to Jesus. That means putting other people before yourself. It means that the things that you care about come way down the bottom of the list. It means that you're willing to do things for other people so they can see the goodness of Jesus. And notice what he says in verse 2. He says that stewards are required to be faithful. That's it, right? We're required to be faithful. It's not up to that, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago, it's not up to us how fruitful we are, but it is up to us how faithful we are. So I can't really control how many people are going to come to trust Jesus because of the ministry of this church. That's nothing to do with me. But what I can control is how faithful I am as a steward and as a servant. And you can't control whether or not your friend or your neighbor uh, trusts in Jesus. And thankfully, it's not up to you, right? All you can do is, is, is control how faithful you are in showing the way of Jesus and sharing the good news of Jesus. Like Paul says, we saw in chapter 3 that, that when, when Thomas taught here a couple of weeks ago, that it's God who gives the growth. It's not us. We're called to faithfulness, not fruitfulness. So some of you are called to be kids workers in this church, maybe in other churches. Some of you are called to be church leaders. Some of you are called to be church planters. <laughs> Some of you are called to be coffee makers. Some of you are called to, to clean the building. But here's the point. Whatever you're calling, you're called to be faithful. Whatever you're calling, you're called to be faithful. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, about, uh, don't worry about how many lives you influence. Don't worry about how many followers you get on Twitter. Don't worry about how famous you become. Uh, just worry, am I being faithful in the thing that God has called me to here? We just keep rowing, like, like Dory. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming. We just keep faithfully rowing. This is what we're called to. And this is how we have to see ourselves. So when, when, you, when you evaluate your life this morning... Is it marked by faithfulness? Do you think, yeah, I, I have been faithful in what God has called me to? That's how we have to evaluate ourselves. Secondly, then, we're called to be stewards and, we're, and servants, we're called to be faithful, but we need to see that, that God is our only judge. God is our only true judge. So I'm going to look at verses 3 to 6 here. Let's read verses 3 to 6. Uh, but with me, that's with Paul. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring into the light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, 
that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against one another. Most of us, I think, we're pretty good at, we pretend that we don't care what people think, but at the same time, we actually are really worried about what people think, right? That makes sense? So you say to yourself, I don't, really, I don't care what people think of me, but at the same time, you're cut to the bone by that thing they said about you last week, right? And probably, probably you behave and speak and, and maybe even dress in a certain way based on what people think about you. Is that, is that true? Would you say that? It seems like, it seems like the, the, the Apostle Paul had this really good balance about how we should think about what people think of us. He says in, in verse 3 that, that how human people judge him is a very small thing, but he's not saying that, that other people's opinions don't matter. In fact, in his instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 about choosing elders, he says that the elders should be well thought of by others. So we know that other people's opinions do matter. He also, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he, he, when he came to Corinth at the start, he, didn't, he, he wanted them to have an opinion of him that was, I just trust in Jesus, right? He wanted them to see him in a certain way. And so when we think about it in the right way and with the right motivations, other people's opinions of us do matter. And when he says in verse 3 that he doesn't judge himself, and when he says in verse 4 that he's not aware of anything against himself, he's not saying that he doesn't examine himself, nor is he saying that he is perfect, like far from it. This is the same Paul who wrote Romans chapter, Romans chapter 3, or Romans chapter 7. And you know in that passage what he says? He assesses himself and he knows that he's doing plenty wrong. He says, he, he says what does he say? I have it written down here. I don't understand my own actions. He said, I, I don't do what I do want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. How many of us feel like that? Paul's a man who's very aware of himself and, and for whom self-awareness is very important. But what he is saying is that in this instance, when it comes to his ministry and his work among the Corinthians, that he has a clear conscience because as far as he is concerned, that he's been a faithful servant and steward to these people. In his mind, he served them well. But here's the thing. Both of those things don't matter. He says, he, he, he says, it doesn't really matter how other people judge me. It doesn't even matter how I judge myself. There's only one standard that he holds himself to. And what is it? It's these seven words in verse four. It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Imagine if we had that attitude in our lives. He knows that he's not going to stand before the church someday and give an account of his faithfulness. He's going to stand before Almighty God someday and give an account of his faithfulness. And so here's our challenge uh, for us this morning. There's only one opinion of you that really matters, and that's God's. Like, do, do, you, do you understand that? Like, I, I, have a heart, I, don't, I don't really consider that in my day-to-day -day life. I consider what my wife thinks of me. I consider what you guys think of me. I consider what other people think. I even consider what random strangers walking down the street think of me. But how often do we bear in mind that, that it is the Lord who judges me? There's only one opinion about you that has eternal repercussions. It doesn't really matter what human standard you hold yourself to, whether it's likes on Instagram, whether it's how far up in your career you get, whether it's, you know, how many kids you have, I don't know, whatever it is you measure yourself by, at the end of the day, 
you're going to have to give an account to God about your faithfulness in being a servant and being a steward. That's it. So consider this. Whose opinion really matters to you? Do you care more about what other people think of you than what God thinks of you? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, he says, have no fear of them. He's talking to his disciples and he says, have no fear of them. That's the, the, the world around them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, don't lose your eternal perspective, guys. There's things hidden right now that, that one day are going to be brought into the light. And this is exact, isn't this exactly what Paul says here in, 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 chapter, in verse 5? Things that are hidden in our hearts that will one day be revealed. See, it's totally possible for me to stand up here and for you all to think that I'm faithful, but my motivations can be wrong. And in my heart, I'm completely unfaithful. Same with you guys. This is what Paul calls, calls the, the purposes of the heart. So what is our motivation? I love what he says here. He says in the end of verse 5 that each one is going to receive his commendation from God, right? So what you have to understand is that... Oh my goodness, I spilled water. <laughs> Sorry, that's embarrassing. No, I really care what you think about me. <laughs> Just type my idea we're going to receive a commendation from God. Last week we heard that, that some of our work, we're going to be judged and some of our work's going to be burned up, right? Um, but here he's like, we're all going to receive a commendation. If you're a Christian, you're going to receive a commendation, praise from God. Why? Because you're in Jesus and he sees Jesus' righteousness, not ours, okay? Um, but what you have to understand is that in the Corinthian context, uh, receiving human praise and commendation was, was one of the highest goals. So you wanted to be well thought of. Um, it, was like, it was like kind of a social currency. And if people thought of you highly, you could rise the social ladder. So people wanted to have their names on buildings. I'm sure you've seen this in documentaries and stuff on TV. Where, like you're all watching Greek documentaries. But you know what I mean. Like, you know, it's like buildings with like... Uh, inscriptions on them. That's what people wanted. That's what people desired. If I have a good name, I can rise up the social ladder. And Paul is saying, listen, forget that. The ultimate praise uh, from God in the judgment is the only praise that matters. Forget whatever social currency you think you might need to achieve glory in this life. That is nothing compared to the praise that you're going to get from God someday. He's saying, do you realize that because you're in Jesus, if you remain faithful in your calling as servants and stewards, you're going to receive praise from God someday. And what more could you want? Uh, Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable, a story, an uh, earthly story with the heavenly meaning. Uh, it's about this master who gives some of his servants some money. And he's going away. He's like, guys, uh, invest this money. I'm going to come back in a bit and, and let's see how you do. And, and there's, there's three servants and two making a return on the investment. They're the faithful servants. They, they've been faithful in their calling as stewards. And listen to what Jesus, listen, Jesus tells what the master says to them. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Like, is that not what we're living for, guys? well done. I want to, I want Jesus to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. 
On one day, all the things that we care about and get worked up about and get worried about, they're going to be completely insignificant. They won't matter at all. And the only thing that will matter is hearing those words from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's our motivation to keep, keep going. There's one final bit of this that I want to mention from verse 6 before I move on. If, um, if God is our only true judge, then, then Scripture is our only true standard, right? He says, I've applied all these things to you, verse 6, that, by, um, that you may learn by us not to, go, to not go beyond what is written. Okay. I want you to learn this so that you won't go beyond what is written. And he's talking about Scripture. That's really a common phrase in the Bible to describe the Bible, <laughs> to describe Scripture, is what is written. Jesus says it all the time. You have heard it written. Is it not written? And he's saying, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond the Bible. Like, it's all there. You, you, you don't, if you, want, if you know that God is your only judge, you know how you know what his opinion is. The Bible. The Bible is how we know God and how we can understand his will for our lives. And there's nothing more to add to that. So it means that through the Bible, we can assess and evaluate every situation in our lives. If you want to know how you're doing, read the Bible. If you want to know what to do, read the Bible. Um, I was chatting to someone recently. It was a guy, and he's given me permission to share this story. And he said, um, he's not in this room, so don't try and guess who it is. Um, and he was, I, that's actually just giving you another clue. Um, doesn't matter. He said it's fine to tell a story. And he was, he was feeling particularly insecure about himself. And the reason he was insecure about himself is because he's not married and he really, he, he desires that for his life. And as we talked, I, I began to realize, and I just listened to him, we were just hanging out, having a coffee, and I realized that he, what was happening was he was looking around at other people who were married, he was looking at the things on, on TV shows and films, and he was, it's almost like, it's almost like that, that marriage had become the ultimate goal of his life. And being the guy that he is, so willing to, to, to listen and, and to look to the Bible, we, we quickly realized that what the Bible shows us is that the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment not, comes not through marriage, not through having a good marriage or not through having any marriage, but by knowing that you're deeply loved by Jesus. You have this relationship with Jesus which will far outlast any marriage because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That's what it means to assess yourself through the, the lens of Scripture. That's what it means to not go beyond what is written. So let me ask you, do, do you use the Bible as your standard? Do you use the Word of God as your uh, self-assessment tool? Because if God is our only judge, Scripture is our only standard. The third thing I want to see then um, from verse 7 and 8 is that everything we have is because of God's grace. So Paul says a couple of strange things here. He says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? Uh, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you become kings. And would that you, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You see, the Corinthians had got their evaluation way wrong, hadn't they? They were boasting about their wisdom. They were boasting about 
what tribe they belong to. Well, well, I'm a Paul guy. He's the best guy. Well, I'm an Apollos guy. No, he's the best guy. Um, I want to have a good name for myself, so I'm going with the OG. I'm going with Peter. He's the, he's the, the rock that Jesus is going to build the church on. They had elevated themselves. They were going beyond what was written. They were trying to, to earn the praise of human beings. They were trying to climb the social ladder within the church. They had taken the social ladder of culture and they had brought it into the church. And, and what was meant to be counter to culture had become exactly like culture. They were trying to earn the praise of human beings because that's what they thought was most important. They had forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten that they had received everything by grace. And, and Paul in verse 8, he, he, he enters in. I, Paul does this sometimes. You have to look out for it. He, he uses hyperbole. He uses the sarcasm uh, to get them to stop and think about how ridiculous they're being. He's like, oh, well, you guys, you guys have everything already. He's like, look, you're already rich. You're already like kings. Sure, you already have all the glory. But here's what they were missing. They had failed to recognize their position as recipients of God's grace. I just said a bunch of stuff and I'm aware that some of you are new to this, so let me explain. Grace in the Bible means this. If you want a definition for grace, you can take this down. Grace is the goodness of God that we don't deserve given to us through Jesus. Okay, let me say that again. If you, if you want to understand what the word grace means, the goodness of God that we don't deserve given to us through Jesus. See, well, uh, they had received this gift of God's goodness and then they were boasting about how good they were for receiving a gift. And, and Thomas did a really good job of, of, of explaining why that's a foolish thing to do. Yeah, look at me, I received the gift. How great am I? But here's the point I really want us to grasp this morning. When we evaluate our lives and ourselves in light of the gospel, we see our true position as nothing except sinners who have received the grace of God. When we evaluate ourselves in light of the gospel, we see our true position as nothing except sinners who have received the grace of God. Everything we have, we have received by God's grace alone. So how could we ever boast? How could I ever say, well, well, I'm a better Christian than you. No, 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 no. Well, you do that, and I don't do that, so I'm a better Christian than you. Well, actually, have you seen how many prayer meetings I went to this week? I must be a better Christian than you. It's absurd. It's absurd to boast and cause division in this way. Why? Because Ephesians 2 tells us that for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. I love the question that Paul asked them in verse 7. He says, he, um, he says, what makes you any different from anybody else? You see, they're saying, well, we're like kings. Look how rich we are. Did you know that I, I have an inscription on a building down the street? I hold this position. And he's like, well, what different, what's different about you than anybody else? We're all the same. We've all, we're all just recipients of God's grace to us. Without the goodness of Jesus you would have absolutely nothing. So how can you boast? Like, without the goodness of Jesus, what am I? In the grand eternal scheme of things, what am I without the goodness of Jesus? I'm nothing. I'm lost. So how can I boast? Well, Paul answers that question in Romans 3. He says, there is no distinction. You see the relation? Here he asks, what is the difference? 
And here he answers, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Church, this is who we are this morning. We're saved by grace and you have no grounds to boast. Without Jesus, you're like every other human being that has ever lived. You've fallen short of God's glory. That just means that without Jesus, you could never enter into the glorious and eternal life that God has for you. That's what it means to have fallen short of God's glory. You could never have this. So, so tell me this. If we are nothing without Jesus, then how can we boast in anything but Jesus? That's what he's saying. He's saying you've lost sight of the gospel. This is why you have division. This is why you're puffed up against one another because you've lost sight of the fact that you're all just recipients of grace. You've all just received the goodness of God that you didn't deserve through Jesus. If you really understand who you are as a Christian, if you really want to evaluate yourself using the standards of the Bible... Just think about God's grace to you. I guarantee you, once you start pulling up that thread, you'll never find the end of it. Because when we evaluate ourselves in light of, of the scripture, our only conclusion is that we're sinners saved by grace. That's it. That's all we have. And you know what? I love this. We're going to spend all of eternity just enjoying and basking in the goodness of Jesus. And the more we consider the depths of God's goodness to us, the more we'll realize that, that we can never reach the end of it. The goodness of Jesus. I, I want us to go away today with a, with a deeper awareness of God's goodness to us. This is the only thing we have. We can claim all kinds of things in, in society, can't we? You know, we can, we can claim that, oh, yeah, well, I own a house and um, I, I, I'm a doctor and, you know, I, I have these positions I have a good stand within the community. But after you die, what do those things really matter, really? The only thing then matters is if you have a plea to the goodness of Jesus or not. We need to see ourselves in this way. We're just recipients of God's grace. And that's not a position of weakness. That's a position of strength. And that leads us on to my final point this morning. Um... Now is the time for suffering, not glory. Oh, great. Good way to finish. <laughs> He's like, well, sweet. The goodness of Jesus. Yeah, well, we're going to suffer. This is what Paul says in verses 9 to 13. Uh, a big, big chunk. I'm going to read it for us. Read along with me. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul, Paul's describing here the present situation of Christians, right? So here's the thing. Um, in the grand scheme of, of what we call redemptive history, that means that the, the story of the Bible from, from the creation of the world to the end of Revelation, um, we live in the same era 
as the Corinthian church. That's why we can confidently read the New, the New Testament instructions to these churches and take it for ourselves. We live in this time period between the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, right, and the second coming of Jesus. This is the time period that we live in. Uh, uh, Peter refers to it commonly as, as the last days, the end times, you might say. And it's in that, this current situation that, that we live in right now that we can share with the Corinthians. And Paul says that now is the time for suffering, not glory. You see, the, the, Christians were getting, the Corinthians were getting ahead of themselves, right? They, they were trying to jump the gun. They knew that this glory was reserved for them in Jesus, and they were taking it for themselves now, right? But, but that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the example of Christ. In fact, you can trace this the whole way through the, the Bible story, that, that in, in, in the way God has designed things is that, that glory comes through suffering. That's always the way he has worked out his salvation purposes, the glory of God in salvation through suffering. But they were jumping the gun. They were like, no, give me the glory now. Give me the glory now. Right? Like, like uh, when Finley comes home from school and Healy says, well, you can watch TV. I, said, I don't know if this happens or not, but you can watch TV. It's an example. You can watch TV after you change your clothes and uh, do your homework. But he's like, no, I want to watch TV. I'm going to watch TV now. He knows the treat is coming, but he, he doesn't want to go through the suffering, the suffering of changing your clothes and doing your homework. But, but it, it's that example. It's it just, I think, further shows their immaturity. And we're guilty of exactly the same thing. See, compared to the praise and honor and wealth that the Corinthians wanted, compared to the praise and honor and glory and wealth and, and social status that, that, that you want right now, Paul paints a picture of Christian life that is frankly, at first look, unappealing. Because he shows us, firstly, he says, well, here's how the world sees us, Right? We want to be wise and strong and have a good reputation. But Paul says in the eyes of the world, we're foolish and weak and have a bad name. Does that sound familiar? The things that the world was saying about the church in the first century are exactly the same as the things that the world is saying about the church now. You're a Christian? Well, that's just a crutch for, that's just a crutch for weak people. People can't make it on their own. You're weak. Oh, you believe in God? You believe that God became a man and then died and then rose again and then like somehow whooshed up into heaven? You're an idiot. You're a fool. In fact, I sat in a conversation not two weeks ago where a, a, a woman uh, um, called Tim and Tom stupid, actually way worse than stupid for believing what they believed. You're foolish. What about a bad reputation? Do Christians have a good reputation in society? No. In fact, if you're living in the way of Jesus and are following his example, people will think you're foolish. They will uh, think you're weak and they will give you a bad name. But I don't, it can't, this kind of gets me riled up a wee bit because I, I think, why are we so scared about what people think of us? Why? Why is it that we, we care so much about what people think? Why do we care about having a bad reputation? You see, when I look at, the, when I look at the, the Christians in the New Testament, the very first Christians, they were getting beat up for knowing Jesus. They were getting thrown. Half the time when Paul went to a new city and started preaching the gospel, there was a riot because the things he said were so outrageous and people were getting saved and leaving their old way of life. What happened to us? Why are we so scared to suffer for Jesus? Because for most of us, and myself included, I'm saying this to myself, 
It's a foreign concept. Suffering for Jesus is a foreign concept for most of us, right? But here's the truth. If we follow the example of Christ, we need to be prepared to suffer like Christ. If we're following the way of Jesus, then we must suffer like him. And Paul says in verse 9, he says this this really interesting analogy. He says that the apostles will become like a spectacle of men sentenced to die. That's a cultural thing that he's talking about there. You see, when the Roman army would go off and win a, win a battle, they would have a parade kind of thing, a procession on the way home. And up at the front, you'd have the generals on their horses and, and all his sergeants and all that kind of stuff. And then behind, and the legionnaires, I think they're called. And then behind that, you'd have the victorious soldiers. And then behind them, you would have all the loot, which is essentially treasure and women they would bring back. And then at the very, very end of the procession, you would have the defeated soldiers brought back, wounded, beat up, condemned men. And they'd be paraded through the streets on their way to go to the arena where they'd be, they'd be shown as a spectacle, thrown to fight lions and gladiators and be torn apart. And Paul says, this is what it's like to follow Jesus. We're, we're a spectacle of men sentenced to die. And here's the thing that I want you to get this morning. This is just like the Lord Jesus, isn't it? He was paraded in a, a spectacle of, of cruel humiliation carrying his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to die in a public place in a violent way. And yet Jesus says that if we want to come after him, then we need to take up our cross and follow him. So I'll say it again. If we follow the example of Christ, we must be prepared to suffer like Christ. There's a cost to following Jesus and the cost is our lives. And, and to be honest, in Northern Ireland and Belfast here, I, I don't even think that we've begun to scratch the surface of what that means. But if you go to our brothers and sisters in the Philippines, in Iran, in China, in Cuba, they'll show you what it means. How many of our heroes of the faith have given their lives and endured rape and torture because they love Jesus? And we're scared to share the gospel because we don't want people to think we're weird. It's challenging because it's meant to be challenging. Dietrich Bonhoeffer I'm not going to go into who he is, but he was basically a teacher in Nazi Germany. And he said this. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So let me ask you again, are you willing to suffer in the way of Jesus? It's getting more and more uncomfortable in Northern Ireland to be a Christian. And the day is coming when our faithfulness will be tested by our readiness to suffer for the name of Jesus. I guarantee you. So we need to take up our cross and follow him. But, but, but Paul, and I'm, I'm, I'm on my very last thought here. Paul shows us this is how the world sees us, but then he also shows us how we respond in verse 12. He says, when we're reviled, we respond by blessing those who revile us. So in other words, when people reel at us, when people curse us, when people excuse me, abuse us, we don't curse back at them. We respond by blessing them. 
When we are persecuted, we respond by enduring the persecution, right? So we don't try to find a way out. We don't change what the Bible says or soften what Jesus said just so that people will like us better. No, we're faithful to what God says because we trust that he is good and no matter what, he'll see us through. And when, we, and, and, and when we're slandered, we respond by entreating those who slander us. Entreat just means that, that, that we joyfully and kindly invite them to know the goodness of Jesus. I had someone make up stuff about me this week that got back to me through somebody else. That's okay. It doesn't matter if people put words in our mouths or, or think we're crazy. That's okay because we trust the goodness of Jesus, don't we? And so when we do this, when we live this way, when we endure and when we bless and when we entreat, you know what that is? That's a cruciform life. To live this way is to live a life that is shaped by the cross of Jesus. And we see all these things in the death of Jesus. See, when they accused Jesus and they lied about him, he didn't try to hire the best lawyer to, to wiggle his way out of that case. No. The Bible says that he was silent before his accusers. And when they stripped him naked and, and they whipped him, when they, they, they pulled out his beard with their hands, they made a crown of thorns, and when they, they pushed it into his skull, and when they paraded him through the streets, and, and when they kneeled his hands and his feet to, to a cross, he could have called down an army of angels and destroyed them all and shown them who was boss. But he didn't. Hebrews 12 says that, that because of the joy that was his in God, he endured the suffering. And we follow that. Because of the joy that is ours, we endure the suffering. And not only that, he blessed those who murdered and tortured him. He says, Father, please forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. That's the goodness of Jesus. That's the grace that's ours. And so we follow his example. We live this cruciform life. And you know what? When we live this cruciform life, we won't be arguing who's, over, who's better. We won't be saying, oh, I'm a better Christian than you, or I follow this. We won't even be thinking that way. You know what we'll be doing? We'll be trying to outdo each other in service. We'll be trying to, we'll be trying to outdo each other in making ourselves the lowest. We'll be trying to honor each other. When we evaluate our lives in light of the gospel, it leads to, to, to humility and suffering, not pride and glory. And we can live like this because we know that what? We know that one day we're going to receive the praise from God. God's going to give us that commendation. And, and, and let this be our motivation for, for living this cruciform life. That one day, if you're in Jesus, you're going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Isn't that incredible? Let me pray for us.